Hello. Welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat. I am an avid theater goer based in New York City who has a passion for live theater. From Broadway to way, way off Broadway and even occasionally out of town when I have the opportunity to see a show. I've started a personalized blog and this podcast to capture my reviews of the shows I have attended. Since I typically go to more than 100 performances per year, what I hope to do is both record my thoughts from my own memory as well as try to share my experiences to inspire you to try a show or a play or a theater company you may not know. You can always visit the website at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com for the most up-to-date reviews. For my first podcast, I decided to start with a recap of the 2017 theater review year from my seat. I attended 134 productions last year, 29 of which were on Broadway. The rest were either largely New York or out of town. I managed to see seven productions out of town, including Berkeley, California, Boston, Chicago, Minneapolis, and San Francisco. In this episode, I'll focus on off-Broadway and out-of-town shows, and in the second episode, I'll focus on the Broadway theater scene uh, from my 2017 experience. I started the blog in May of 2017, so those shows that I have actually blogged about and recorded, I'll be sharing my reviews with you and my thoughts for the ones prior to that. Rather than recreate a review, looking backward, I'll just give you a flavor of why it is I liked or did not like that specific performance. I hope you have fun listening, as I've had fun attending all these shows through the year. First up, Company of the Year. I give this uh, award to the Mint Theatre Company, based here in New York City. Three exceptionally good productions from this troupe that specialize in reviving lost plays. This year we were treated to Yours Unfaithfully by Miles Mallison, The Lucky Ones by A.A. A. Milne, and The Suitcase Under the Bed by Teresa Devey. There are very few misfires from this company. I've been a loyal follower for about 10 years now. It's a great opportunity to see what issues and ideas playwrights brought to the table often nearly a century ago. First up, The Lucky One, from a blog post from June 12th. I started attending productions by the Mint Theatre Company in 2007 with the return of the prodigal. The Mint finds and produces worthwhile plays from the past that have been lost or forgotten. I have seen all but one of the last 27 plays produced by this outstanding company over the last decade. I'll post more about the Mint Theatre eventually, but suffice it to say for now that the play selections are usually excellent and the production values and casts well worth your time and money. Having a strong interest in exploring historical themes, peoples, and situations places the Mint right in the center of my theatrical runway. A.A. A. Milne's The Lucky One was originally premiered in New York in 1922 before his Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh stories made him a worldwide celebrity. Mr. Milne was a very successful and prolific playwright, having three comedies on Broadway in the 1921-22 season prior to this play. The Lucky One tells a commonly charted family story about the antagonism and rivalry between the two Farringdon brothers, played by Robert David Grant and Ari Brand. These characters talk about golf and life at their country house, and naturally one of the brothers is the luckier of the two. While the lucky one may be a century old, sibling jealousies and confrontations still resonate even if the setting is quaintly old-fashioned. Overall good performances and a worthwhile play from the reliable Mint Theatre Company. Jonathan Bank, the artistic director of the Mint Theatre, specializes in finding and producing neglected or forgotten plays. Teresa Devey was discovered while researching female Irish playwrights. Her plays were produced in the 1930s and then forgotten. Since she has been previously published, 
The search eventually took him to the two-century-old family home in Waterford, Ireland. Stuffed under a bed were two suitcases filled with a treasure trove of typescripts. Working with Teresa's grandniece, the Dee Project was born. From 2010 to 2013, the Mint produced three of her plays, Wife to James Whalen, Temporal Powers, and Katie Roche, which actually played in Dublin's Abbey Theatre last summer. All three plays were excellent. What is remarkable about her work is the feminist point of view at the time they were written. The Suitcase Under the Bed is a collection of four of her short plays, two of which have never been produced or published. One of those, Holiday House, was so good, I wanted a whole play with these characters. Two brothers going to the family vacation home for the month of August with their wives, one of which had been previously engaged to the other brother, tossed into the mix as a nervous, judgmental sister in their mater. Two of the other three shorts were impressive as well, notably the final piece, The King of Spain's Daughter. Aidan Redmond played Peter Kinsella, a laborer and the father of Annie, played by Sarah Nicole Deaver, a wild child with boys on her mind. Mr. Redmond appeared in all four plays and inhabited a completely different character in each one. Surrounded by a very talented cast, he was a standout. A side benefit from attending this production and multiple short plays at once is being able to watch actors change roles. One of the plays, In the Cellar of My Friend, didn't really capture me as much as the other three did. In addition to selecting the shorts to be played, Jonathan Bank directed The Suitcase Under the Bed. As is often the case with the Mint Theater, the acting was exceptionally good. The production values at the Mint are usually very high for an off-Broadway company. Here, the costumes by Andrea Varga were right on target. If you hadn't had the opportunity to encounter any of Teresa Didi's work, The Suitcase Under the Bed was a nice introduction. Now let's move on to the top 10 best of 2017. In the arbitrary group of off-off and out-of-town plays and musicals, these were my favorites this year. They are listed in the order in which I saw them. I've included short comments only for those whose viewing predates this blog. The rest I'll share with you a more fuller review. First was a revived play production of Picnic by the Transport Group. William Inge's Pulitzer Prize winning 1953 potboiler of a young virile drifter who happens onto a small Kansas town. Exceptional staging and superb acting added to the immediacy of 85 audience members sitting right in front of the action at the Judson Gym. Next, Theater for a New Audience's production of The Skin of Our Teeth, a revival of another Pulitzer Prize-winning play from 1942 by Thornton Wilder who wrote Our Town. Over three acts, we meet a New Jersey family faced with an impending ice age, a trip to the Atlantic City boardwalk, and the aftermath of war. A mesmerizing production of a crazy entertaining play which really must have blown audience away back in the day. Next, in a combined production from Ars Nova and the WP Theater was Sundown Yellow Moon. Here, in a small southern college town, the kids come to visit their cranky father in this evocative study of family communication and the lack thereof by Rachel Bonds. With original songs by the Bensons, who hit it bigger off-Broadway later in the year with 100 Days, this was easily one of the best stage designs of the year. Fourth in our best of list is Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Stephen Sondheim's macabre musical masterpiece still running downtown right now. I saw this show three times, including taking some lucky out-of-town visitors. 
Here are my comments on my third visit. What's better than grabbing a Key Royale or two in a croque-monsieur in Greenwich Village prior to a matinee performance of Sweeney Todd? Nothing. Probably my favorite musical. I've seen the original on video, the 1989 and 2005 Broadway revivals, and now this off-Broadway incarnation I've seen three times. This visit was expressly to see a friend, Liz Pierce, understudy the role of Mrs. Lovett. My favorite version of this show still belongs to John Doyle's 2005 revival, starring Michael Cerveris and Patti Lapone, with Lauren Molina's super-fragile Joanna. I went back a second time with my daughter because it was not to be missed. A stripped-down staging and orchestration with the actors playing the instruments, we were treated to an intimacy to Stephen Sondheim's music and lyrics that added even more dimensions and levels of appreciation to an already classic musical. In the current version, the Barrow Street Theater is reconfigured into an actual pie shop, where you can actually have a pie before the show. It's intimate, a little claustrophobic, in your face, and abundantly entertaining. There have been a number of casts that I've seen. I've seen both the British pair who brought this version from London as Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett, Jeremy Sicombe and Sybil McCarthy, and also Norm Lewis and Carolyn Carmelo. In supporting roles, I loved Alex Fink as Johanna. And Matt Doyle's Anthony and Jamie Jackson's Judge Turpin were the best I've ever seen. And another Mrs. Lovett. Mrs. Pierce gave a terrific performance nailing the humor. Norm Lewis's Sweeney was even darker than I had remembered. Riveting, riveting stuff. If you can go, go see this. It's still open in 2018. If you've never seen Sweeney Todd, even better. As this show continues to be restaged, reimagined, and recast, this macabre masterpiece defines great theater. More hot pies! Another one of my favorites was by a company called Culture Project and their production of The View Upstairs. This was based on a true but largely forgotten event. It's a musical about a gay bar in 1973 New Orleans. 32 people were killed by an arsonist. The View Upstairs is a celebration of love and a meditation on hate. And this one was oddly funny and irredeemably sad. And still relevant, even more sadly. In September of 2017 is Oh My Sweet Land, produced by The Play Company. Written and directed by Amir Nizar Zouabi, Oh My Sweet Land is being staged in kitchens throughout New York City. The play was inspired by the stories Mr. Zouabi heard while he traveled to Syrian refugee camps in Milan, Jordan. For this piece, Nadine Malouf performs the solo show while preparing kibbeh, a popular Middle Eastern dish of bulgur, onion, brown meat, and spices. While cooking, she tells us stories. One is about Ashraf, her Brooklyn lover and a Syrian exile who she pursues abroad when he returns home to rescue his family. What will she find when she gets there? Quite a few stories are told in this deceptively simple play. Because the dialogue is so efficient and the setting so intimate, the experience is akin to inviting someone into your home, not only to share their life, but also deliver news from around the world. And since this is such a small space, there is no disappearing into the dark theater with a large audience. This actress intensely meets your gaze. Serious, serious stuff. Miss Malouf was exceptional here. The structure of the play allows her to display many emotions and inner thoughts. From eight feet away, I could see the tears well up in her eyes, full of liquid, sadness, concern, hope, and despair. Unlike the television, newspaper, or internet, 
it's not really possible to look or click away. You are confronted with the thought of fellow human beings in distress. She seems to be making the kibbe almost as therapy. We hosted two performances of Oh My Sweet Land for 15 people each night. The play company brings this all to life with chairs, lighting, sound effects, which, from my seat, made our kitchen disappear. In replacement, empathy. For the Syrian people, for our immigrants, and for humanity's continual struggle to allow others the pursuit of happiness. A little more than an hour long, it's quite a piece of theater. The seventh entry in my top ten best of list is the public theater's production of Tiny Beautiful Things. Here's where I'll pause for a moment and apologize for all the mispronounced names that will happen today and on future blogs because there are so many and they're so difficult for some of them to be said correctly. On to the review. I walked into Tiny Beautiful Things with a little knowledge. I knew the play was adapted by and starred Nia Vardalos, my Big Cracking Weddings writer, and star. I knew it was based on a book by Cheryl Strayed. Years ago, I read her best-selling memoir, Wild, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Coast Trail. I knew it was directed by Thomas Kale, who also directed Hamilton. And I knew that this play was sold out last year, and this production was returned to a larger house, again a tough ticket. The book, Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar, is based on selections from an anonymous online column Mistrade wrote before Wild was published and became an Oscar-nominated film. Essentially, the play's structure utilizes the advice column communications and Sugar's responses, which are often from a very personal, introspective place. This piece is delicate, sad, funny, thought-provoking, sincere, honest, devastating, life-affirming, and yes, a tiny beautiful thing. I loved it. Ms. Vardalos plays Sugar, a down-to-earth yet oracle type, working from her home on her laptop. She's superb. The performance is restrained, dramatic, and generous to her fellow performers, which can sometimes be hard to find in star-driven vehicles. Watch her listen and you'll see what I mean. Three actors, Teddy Cañez, Hubert Point du Jour, and Natalie Willems-Torres, all excellent, play the assorted letter writers seeking advice. Filled with quotable lines and memorable monologues throughout, the result is a modulated torrent of grief, anger, confusion, and neediness, from subject serious to mundane to silly. Ms. Strade's very personal and intimate writing style shines through beautifully here. The simplicity and clarity of the staging and acting allow the emotional core to be the centerpiece. A celebration of life's imperfect journeys, Tiny Beautiful Things is not to be missed by anyone unafraid to shed a tear or anyone with a beating heart. Next up, Peoples, Places, and Things. Duncan Macmillan wowed me a few months ago as the co-adapter and co-director of 1984, which traveled to Broadway from London. Now his play, People, Places, and Things, is being performed at St. Anne's Warehouse. Once again, we are rewarded with stylized and intense theatricality with a riveting central performance. The play is about addiction and rehabilitation. The actress is Denise Guff, who won an Olivier Award for this role and is making a big-time New York stage debut. While she'll be back on Broadway this spring with another London production, Angels in America, this performance should not be missed. 
Miss Guff's character is an actress who opens the play in a tailspin while performing The Seagull. Within minutes, we are at a rehab center watching the train wreck and cannot look away. The performance is real and complex like the character. As you might imagine, we are in the land of emotions, sharing, setbacks, and healing. Writing her as an actress is one of the great devices here. We are forced to examine identity, how we present ourselves, how others see us, and ultimately who we want to be. This might sound like every other addiction story ever told. Under the direction of Jeremy Heron, however, this production is far from ordinary. This play connects rehab with the theatrical process. In that regard, we have a staging that is dynamic in the big moments while quiet in the soft moments. Add in a few jolting flourishes of light and sound, and we are forced to experience this character's journey head on. Icing on the cake, it's a great play from beginning to the unforgettable end. My next favorite in a play I love is The Wolves, which was produced and performed at Lincoln Center. Apparently, I have accidentally stumbled onto my theater week with young women as the central topic. First, I saw WP Theater's What We're Up Against, a play focused on discrimination in the 1992 workplace. Then I took in The Mad Ones, a musical about a teenage girl in her senior year of high school. And last, but certainly not least, is The Wolves by Sarah Delap. This is her first play, moved uptown to Lincoln Center after a hugely successful run last year off-Broadway and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, which was won by Lynn Nottage's Sweat. A girls indoor soccer team is the focus here. They are the wolves of the title. We begin the play on the field with the ladies stretching and talking as in real life. Multiple conversations happening at the same time. Where to focus? It doesn't matter as this confident playwright introduces nine young ladies with distinct personalities. The topics? Suffice it to say that the opening dialogue travels from tampons versus pads to the Khmer Rouge effortlessly, if you can believe that. Over the last five to ten years, those of us who love theater have been fortunate to experience another golden age of playwriting. The Wolves confidently joins the list with its exceptional dialogue and storytelling. This play is so good because it makes you feel like you are eavesdropping on the team. Their insecurities, their petty battles, their gossip. And then there's a mystery of sorts thrown into the mix which keeps you guessing. Directed by Lila Nagenbauer, The Wolves is an ensemble piece where every character is important just as it would be on a winning team. The girls are represented by the numbers they wear. Number 46 is a young lady from out of town and new to the team. The actress portraying her is Tedra Millen, having a breakout 2017, both on Broadway and Present Laughter, and this summer in the Atlantic Theaters on the shore of the wide world. She is only one of the mem memorable performances here. Great theater, superbly staged and acted, highly recommended. And finally, last on the list of top 10, is a production of The Royale at the Aurora Theater in Berkeley, California. The Royale is an excellent play written by Marco Ramirez, loosely based on the story of boxing champion Jack Johnson. He was the basis for The Great White Hope, which made James Earl Jones famous and won the 1969 Tony Award for Best Play. Having never seen that play, I knew only a little of this story. In 1908, Mr. Johnson was the first African-American boxer to claim the crown of world heavyweight champion when he was finally allowed to fight a previous white champion. The resulting victory was followed by race riots around the country. 
Visiting San Francisco for Thanksgiving, I decided to see the Aurora Theater's production of this play, one that I had missed in New York last year. I was rewarded with an exemplary production of an absorbing period piece. While the Real has a small cast of five, it is populated with some larger-than-life characters. Boxing is certainly a focal point, ingeniously directed and choreographed by Daryl V. Jones. The real battle here is the racial tensions percolating underneath and also in full view. For that reason, the play beautifully demonstrates the importance of reflecting on past injustices to help illuminate a saner future. A marvel of perfect casting in both talent and appearance, everyone excels from the white promoter Tim Niffen to our hero's sister, Hatim Ludofia. The star of the show, here named Jay, is Calvin M. Thompson in a rivetingly intense performance that is both physically and emotionally complex. Additionally, I love Satchel Andre, a non-equity actor who gave a completely effective characterization of Fish, the novice up-and-coming African-American boxer. This is high-quality stuff from start to finish. The Royale is an outstanding, thought-provoking, and very, very relevant drama. So that was my list of my favorite from 2017, the top 10. I do have a couple of honorable mentions, however, that I'd like to share. One is Rachel Lily Rosenblum, dot, 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 and don't you ever forget it. 54 Below staged the one-night mini-concert of this famed 1973 Broadway musical flop, which closed before it opened. In a nutshell, this was written for Bette Midler, who passed on it. The plot, Rachel's journey from Brooklyn fishmonger to fame as a Hollywood gossip columnist to an Oscar nomination followed by a nervous breakdown. A mixture of disco and Broadway show tunes, this was a fantastically hilarious and entertaining evening. Trivia Box, book, music, and lyrics by Paul Jabara, later became famous for Donna Summer's Last Dance, Barbara Streisand's The Main Event, and The Weather Girls It's Raining Men. And in the Bette Midler part originally, Ellen Green, who later landed the role of a lifetime in Little Shop of Horrors, an enormously fun evening, packed to the rafters with theater people. We all had a great time. The next show that was part of my honorable mentions group is from the New York Musical Festival. For those who need background, the New York Musical Festival is four weeks in the summer. During this time, the new musicals in development are given full productions, usually for about five performances each. In addition, Nymph hosts readings and concerts for other pieces. Since 2004, there have been over 400 musicals presented, four of which eventually made it to Broadway as Chaplin, Next to Normal, Title of Show, and In Transit. More than 30 have had off-Broadway productions, including the phenomenal Bedbugs, which I like to think is the heir apparent to the Rocky Horror Show and Little Shop of Horrors. This year, there were 21 full productions, and I took in as many as I could to kind of summarize and give a taste of Nymph. The term full production means that a show is fully staged with musicians and performers, but obviously sets have to be the type that can be put up and taken down quickly, since the shows take place in only two off-Broadway houses. The Nymph entry, I really hope, has a future life and a bigger, fuller, higher-budget production is one called Giorama, an American panorama told on three miles of canvas. Opening with the song Nobody Knows, Giorama tells the now obscure story of John Bonvert, a 19th century painter known for his giant panoramas of the Mississippi River. 
he sketched the river while on a boat, eventually painting a canvas that grew to 12 feet high and one half mile long, although it was advertised as a three mile canvas. In 1848, the magazine Scientific America published a piece under New Inventions describing and illustrating Bonford's mechanism for displaying a moving panorama. Giorama uses its own screen projected panorama as the backdrop for the story, moving us from the river to larger towns and cities. As luck would have it, Giorama was my last musical from this festival and clearly was one of my favorites. What's to love? 24 songs in 90 minutes which add layers to the strong book and help develop its characters, all of which is performed by two musicians who only play piano, cello, violin, and guitar. The music feels authentic to the period and yet contains a fine example of where inserting a whimsical musical comedy number out of nowhere completely works. The four-person cast, led by P.J. Griffith and Jillian Lewis, is simply excellent. One of Giorama's big themes revolves around art and the truth, or whether the line between truth and lies has become increasingly blurred, reflected in art is a lie. The musical's even timely, what's not to love? From the best of the year to the worst of the year, I've picked five of my least favorite productions as the worst of 2017. The runners-up, Joan of Arc Into the Fire from the Public Theater. After seeing Talking Heads frontman David Byrne's awesome musical Here's Live Love about Amel DeMarcos, I made sure I had tickets to his next effort. A colossal fail, both idiotic and boring. A play entitled Her Portmanteau at the New York Theater Workshop. A double bill with the play Sojourners by Mofumiso Udopia. This was an exploration of Nigerian traditions clashing with American life. It was two chapters of a nine-part saga that I will never see. Next up is Refugia. Visiting Minneapolis for a family event, I decided to finally see a performance at the renowned Guthrie Theater. The piece is called Refugia, a meditation of sorts on displaced people, climate, and other stuff. This was developed by The Moving Company, which emerged in 2009 from the Tony Award-winning Theater of the Elegion Moon, presumably known for its visually rich style combining clown, mime, dance, and opera. I can firmly report that all of this is present in Refugia. At intermission, my partner ran into a local theater friend from high school who perhaps said it best. It's very June Moon. He and his companions were planning to skip Act Two and go to the bar. Enough said, but I'll add a little more. When entering the theater, the set is a magnificent airline hangar or warehouse or industrial complex. Expectations are raised to a grand, grand scale. What follows cannot begin to match the surroundings. The vignettes are a hodgepodge of simplistic, one-dimensional storytelling combined with unrealized attempts at slapstick farce and pretentious operatic seriousness. Plus, there is a tribal-painted African woman dancing with a polar bear. While watching the Syrian refugee section, I kept thinking about the intense Oscar-nominated documentaries this year instead of this basic dialogue. On the plus side, there were a few moments when the piece seemed to be approaching liftoff, only to jarringly morph into something stupid. I did enjoy everything Renda Haywood did with her roles. However, having sat through this three-hour contrivance, I understand why the bar option was chosen. Another entry on the worst of list is a production of Measure for Measure, 
by the elevator repair service and the public theater. When audience members trickle out of a performance, it is usually not a good sign. When you yourself want to leave really badly and fairly early on during the proceedings, it is definitely not a good sign. When you hang out and make it to the end, you lament the two hours of life lost. Well, at least we celebrated October 17th as the 50th anniversary of the public theater, which opened its doors for the first time with hair. Elevator Repair Service is a talented company I've seen twice. The improbably phenomenal Gats, in which every word of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby is read and staged over a multi-part eight-hour marathon. Then there was Arguendo, a dramatization of a Supreme Court hearing. The company has a way with words. Shakespeare has a way with words. Why the epic fail here? Measure for Measure is a five-act play. Here it is reduced to about two hours and ten minutes over one act. How is this accomplished? By speed performing nearly all of the text. What flows out of the actors' mouths are mostly unintelligible words with not really enough time to convey any meaning or story. If you do not read the synopsis or know the play, I cannot imagine there would be any way to follow the action. Maybe they were going for farce? Slapstick? If that's the case, buffoonery needed to happen way more frequently and actually be funny. And also not crammed briefly at the end when our relentless boredom overtook any connection to the stage. An unwatchable mess, a huge disappointment. And now for the worst production of the year from my seat. Peter Pan from the Off-Broadway Troupe Bedlam. Atrocious is not usually a word associated with J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. In the hands of the off-Broadway troupe Bedlam, however, atrocious is just one descriptor to sum up this incomprehensible, indulgent, occasionally lewd, often idiotic reimagining. In this version, the company has developed a dual storyline. One is a loose connection to Peter, Wendy, and the Lost Boys of the original tale. The other is Wendy having settled down years later, married with kids. Six actors play all of these roles. Confusion trumps clarity. Boredom ensues. Of course Wendy is mad that Peter never grew up and she settled for a bitter suburban lifestyle. The premise is not necessarily a bad idea. Packaged as a first draft inane college project does this exercise no favors. Bedlam has had success in recent years in reinterpreting classics such as Sense and Sensibility and Twelfth Night. This Peter Pan, however, is leaden amazingly dull, and one of my least favorite theatrical experiences in a long, long time. Perhaps if Captain Hook had had the last laugh, I might have at least chuckled once. Finally, I did see Hamilton in Chicago this year, and I did not include it on any of the best of lists, because frankly it's had too many accolades already, but I'd like to share with you my thoughts on having revisited this piece in its national tour. My first visit to Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton was on Broadway during the first month of the run. The hype was enormous. The show was even better than its blazing publicity. I remember leaving the theater commenting that I would pay to see it again just for the lighting. Hamilton is the rare theatrical experience where every creative element is spectacular, from the direction to the choreography to the performances. The storytelling through the books and lyrics is perhaps even at a higher standard. Characters are written with music and words which match their personality and stature. 
Hamilton's a riveting dance history lesson told in a wildly entertaining fashion. After experiencing the original company and enjoying the fantastic cast album, how does Hamilton hold up? I decided to take in a performance from the Chicago company. Here I defined decided as lucky enough to score a great orchestra sheet. The show remained great. A second viewing and greater familiarity with the score allows the opportunity to really take in different elements. At one point in the second act, I just looked at the audience, staring at the stage, focused. There was a lot going on and much story to be told. Hamilton demands your attention. Another highlight for me was the chance to see different performers tackle this now iconic show. As an example, in the performance I caught, George Washington was played by Colby Lewis, a standby for the role. A tall man, physically he loomed large over the cast around him. Mr. Lewis's presence and vocal abilities made George seem a bigger character than when I first saw the show, where Christopher Jackson was a total nominee. The song One Last Time, the moment our first president decides to retire and not run for re-election, was an emotionally intense highlight. The powerful themes about democracy, immigrants, politics, war, family, and sacrifice are scattered throughout this musical. Hamilton is this generation's West Side Story. Similarly, the cast album has permeated our culture far beyond the Broadway diehards. Another tale of immigrants and an analysis of their American experience and our country's founding. Given our painful current maelstrom, Hamilton is essential viewing. As the cast sings early on, history is happening. Do not miss this historical piece of theatrical bliss anywhere you can. That's the wrap of The Best of the Worst from 2017. In the next episode, my thoughts on the 2017 Broadway year from theater reviews from my seat. Thank you for listening, and please visit www.theaterreviewsfromyseat.com for a fuller catalog of reviews. You can also email comments or suggestions for productions to be reviewed at theaterreviewsfromyseat at comcast.net.